Well, hey, this is Pastor Jason here. Now, this is a little bit different than before. Uh, we normally were going to have a Hero Makers breakfast, but because of COVID and everything going on, we ended up having to cancel. And so my good friend, who I've known for almost 20 years, yeah. Pastor Garth Heckman, um, he was going to come and speak. And instead, he's decided he actually came down. This is his second time. Twice. I love this place. You, you are practically here. Uh, we actually recorded originally on Saturday, and there were some difficulties. And he graciously agreed to come down again. And so we're re-recording, and maybe we'll find the lost files for the other one. So apparently I can't swear, so we have to shoot this over. <laughs> well, hey, so much. thank you so much if you're watching this. Um, I'm so excited to have you. Now, just a little bit of background. I actually met you in 2002, three-ish. Yeah, right around there. I was a youth pastor. You were a youth pastor, and I remember uh, I heard you speak. We had our youth pastor gathering, and you had shared, and I was like, dude, I, I want that guy to speak into my life. And I've always had mentors, even to this day, I still have mentors and people that I call on. And so I bribed you, I invited you over, and I think it was, was it Phil Gwoki? Yeah. Uh, over, and I bribed them with steak. Yeah. And I remember asking and saying, hey, um, I'm always looking for mentors in my life, would you consider being it? And your response was, let me pray about it. And it took like two weeks before you finally got back to me. But we've been through a lot together. Yeah. Uh, we started a church together. Um, you battled cancer. Uh, I've moved multiple times. I mean, it's just we've had a lot, a lot of stuff happen between us in our relationship. And I'm just so grateful to have you here. Man, I love you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I love you. And it's, it really is mutual. Um, so uh, first off, I, I, let's start off with a real kind of a softball question. Sure. Uh, what's your favorite music? Hair metal. Hair, 80s <laughs> hair metal. And uh, no joke, I listened to it. Saturday when I drove down here, and I listened to it again today when I drove down here. So, and and I know this because at one point when we started our church, we were roofing together. Yeah, and we would listen to hair metal in the car, and that's he's not lying. That's his jam is hair metals. Yeah. Who like any specific band that's your favorite? Well, uh, Van Halen's always been my favorite, and so rest in peace, Eddie. I hope you knew Jesus. But now I also hear that you have quite the record collection. <laughs> I had an amazing record collection. I had hundreds of albums. Uh, yeah. so, uh, share a little bit, because I know the story, but I really, I really think our people watching this would sure. enjoy hearing the story, because it shares a lot about who you are. Yeah, so I'll tell it to you the best way. I was at a luncheon about 15, 16 years ago, sitting at a table, and we were, we were going around introducing ourselves, and one of the gentlemen said, my name is so-and-so Peters. And as he talked, I realized this guy, I believe, used to travel in the 80s with his brother and do a rock seminar uh, called, and they were the Peters Brothers. And, and so I asked him, I said, hey, I said, were you the guy who used to travel and do the rock seminar? Now, if I remember, because we had similar things when I was in high school, right. where the goal was to get kids to stop listening to secular music. Stop listening to secular music. Yeah. It was a two-night event. On the second night, you brought all your albums. You burned them at the church, and then that way you uh, earned your way into heaven. And your, your, your dad was a pastor. My dad was a pastor. Very large <laughs> church. A couple thousand people. was packed both nights. So I'm telling now Mr. Peters this story, and he's kind of gloating. He's like, yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you. you know, he thinks I'm going to tell him about how it changed my life and that I gave up rock music. Now, his wife's sitting right next to him. She's glued to the story as well. And I said, yeah, that second night when everyone brought albums, and I mean they're worth thousands of albums. We filled, we had a cafeteria downstairs 
with an industrial-sized kitchen, and we filled that kitchen with albums. And so the seminar that night was to be about two and a half hours long, and then we were going to burn the albums. Well, long story short, I got the keys from my mom, who had keys to the whole building, and my best friend and I went down there during that second night, went into the cafeteria, rifled through all the albums, <laughs> and took about 600, 650 <laughs> albums a piece, a piece. Not, I mean, like, and he had a pickup truck and put him in his pickup truck. And then over the course of the next few days, I'd sneak him into my house. And so I was telling Mr. Peters this, and I said, so that's how you changed my life. I had the best album collection ever, and I didn't have to pay a dime. And his wife was laughing, and he didn't think it was so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and I wish I, I gave it away at one point, because albums were just going bye-bye with CDs. Yeah. And how I wish I would have hung on to them. But, oh, my God. Yeah, well, and I, I, probably, I probably destroyed probably several thousand dollars worth of tapes back in the day and CDs. I remember breaking CDs. Well, hey, uh, <laughs> I thought that'd be a fun story to start off with. Um, why don't you share a little bit about yourself, uh, your family, and just maybe a little bit about the ministry that you're currently doing. Right. Ben, I've been really privileged to be raised in a pastor's home. I don't know why I say pastor's home. A mom and dad, great mom and dad. Yeah. My dad was a pastor. They love Jesus, still alive, still kicking. 83 and 80. Wow. And he's still speaking and traveling. But it's, it was great. I loved being raised in a pastor's home. Loved everything about it. Loved the people we met uh, the influence, uh, everything. I was not a rebellious kid. I didn't grow up sex, drugs, rock and roll. Apart from stealing 650. Well, I, uh, yeah, rock and roll, I guess maybe. <laughs> but I was never rebellious. I was a risk taker. My parents knew how to channel that. I grew up, knew I was called to ministry. Uh, right out of high school, broke my neck in three places. And that kind of got my attention. About four years after that, my arms went paralyzed, and we had to have a bunch of surgeries and, and uh, figured that out, got out of that. But since then, been married 30, almost 36 years. Yeah, Amazing woman, Kim. Yeah. Oh, I don't know how she's put up with me. And have two boys, one that's 30 and now lives back home, uh, back where we live. Not and in your house. Not in, in my house. Yeah. Well, technically, currently, he does live in my house, but only because they're moving back. It's a long story. It is. A, yeah, yeah. So anyway, and he has a beautiful wife. They've been married 10 years. Gave me two grandkids, uh, Malachi and Addison, six and two. They're amazing. And then my youngest, Reese, 27. They, you know, both boys are polar opposite. But Reese now is living in Colorado, doing well, not married. Girls, please send your resumes to garthheckman at gmail.com. Uh, but doing great. And just, I'm, I'm in, I really have always been in three types of ministry, kind of traveling and speaking yeah. to a secular crowd, be it schools or businesses, traveling and speaking as an evangelist and more with a prophetic voice, and then in a church. And right now I'm at Hillspring Church in New Prague. We are transitioning out of our denomination because of some of the challenges that, that they are Everyone's facing, but they're making the wrong decisions. So we're going to transition out here in the next year. But it's a great church. It's the first small church that I've ever worked in, even uh, smaller than when our church plant was, you know, just banging. But it's been growing and it's showing signs of life and people are beginning to step out. The roots of my denomination is, is really charismatic. 
It went dormant for a long time, and now our church is really, again, beginning to pick up those gifts. And oh, awesome. So it's, it's exciting. It's a good place. Yeah. It's a good place. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that I'm grateful for, <clears throat> excuse me, guys, is when we first met, um, and, and I think a lot of people assume that when they first get married, marriage is always going to be easy. Oh, easy. Yeah. A piece of cake, right? And uh, <clears throat> the first probably five years of my marriage were really tough. And my wife doesn't always like when I share this, but the reason why I share it is because I look at where our marriage now is, our, our marriage is now, and we have such an, a healthy and strong marriage. And God used you to really kind of help us stick that. Because there were times where I just wanted to call in the towel, throw in the towel, and you were like, dude, don't. Right. And I'd love for you just to share me, though. This is really for Hero Makers. That's our men's ministry. Um, but you have this incredible heart for men, for marriage, um, for families. Tell me, share a little bit about that. What has driven you over the years? Why is it that you have such a heart, such a heart to see men thrive and to be the husbands and the fathers that they're called to be? Well, I think you nailed it earlier on where we think everything's going to be easy. Yeah. I watched my father and my parents had a great marriage, but I watched him go through struggles and fights and battles with church and all different things. And he was always just faithful to God faithful to his wife, faithful to his kids, and things passed. You know, things ultimately worked out and got better. And men now feel like, well, if they put a good six-month fight in and nothing changes, they're going to bail. Whatever it is, their job, their marriage. And I just, I realize a lot of men do not have that, that role model, that mentor that they've seen in their life firsthand, that you just gut it out. You don't, you don't get married to get happy, you get married to get holy. Amen to that, yeah. And so a lot of men just need a pat on the back saying, hey, I've been there. Tim Grindstaff was my mentor because when I got married, our first five years were hell on earth. And he sat me down and said, yeah, my first five years were hell on earth. A lot of people's first five years are hell on earth. Stick it out, love your wife, serve God, be faithful. And now again, like you, I can't believe where my marriage is at now at 36 years. Uh, we were playing a game uh, just a few months ago, and they said, if you could have lunch or supper with anybody, who would it be? And I joked and said, well, do I have to pay for it? And they said, no. <laughs> I said, well, then I'd have lunch with my wife. And they all kind of poo-pooed me, and I said, no, I, I would have lunch with my wife. I'd rather spend time with my wife than really anybody. And you think back to the first five years, <clears throat> I would have rather spent time with anybody other than my <laughs> wife. So, yeah. And, and she saw the growth in our marriage because of it. But again, getting back to men, we just, because of media and movies and everything, if it's not easy, we must have married the wrong person, so let's bail. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Well, and, and I think back, um, so you've recently started a ministry, and I say recently, it's been several years now, yeah. called the David Alliance. Yeah. And uh, you have a podcast, which he's got like 5,000 episodes or something like that. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of episodes, and they're short. They're short podcasts, but um, you're kind of a man's man. Right. I mean, you work out, you power lift, even when you're, and we're going to get to the cancer stuff in a little bit, but even when you were battling through cancer and chemo, you still went to the gym, even if it was just to lift a bar. Right. Um, but share a little bit about the David Alliance, kind of what birthed that, um, what it looks like, what's going on there. And, and uh, men, if you're watching this, here's what I would encourage you to go to, go to you, wherever you listen to podcasts, check out the David Alliance. Um, you kind of get straight to it. Yeah. 
And that's one of the things that I appreciated about it is you, you don't kind of dance around the issues. Uh, sometimes you're a little raw and a little in your face, which I think that's, I think men need that and often want that. But I'd love to hear, share a little bit about the David Alliance, what started that, where's it at now, kind of what's going on there. Boy, it was almost three years ago now. I'm trying to think, but yeah, we have about 550 episodes. They're no more than 10 minutes long because men don't want to listen to anything more than 10 minutes. <coughs> Uh, when I did my research, most men's podcasts were way too long. I, did, I couldn't even listen to them. And they were on porn or marriage or why you suck. And it was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so a friend of mine called me, and we both had men in our lives that were making horrible choices. With that, we began to talk, <clears throat> and I, I just started to look into it. And the number one issue in a man's life right now is not porn, it's loneliness. Mm. And loneliness is the gasoline that gets poured on every other issue. So yeah. if you're dealing with porn and you also deal with loneliness, it's going to get worse or whatever the issue. So we thought, how do we combat this? And so we started to think about, you know, what makes a man change? Again, did a lot of reading and research. Men hate change. The only way they'll change is through trauma. Now, do I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict? And yes. But proven, men have to be, you have to be in their face and show them ultimately what their choices are going to make their life. You know, you know, if you keep doing this, this is the trauma that's coming your way. So we thought, let's, let's rescue them or let's reach them before they have to be rescued. Yeah. So the podcast kind of birthed out of that. Ten minutes, real topics in your face. And I always try to think of the guy pulling into work on a Monday, and that's the last place he wants to be. It was a long weekend, maybe argued with his wife, got upset at his kids, whatever. Maybe tied one on or looked at something on the computer he wasn't supposed to look at, and it's just beat up. And you turn on the David Alliance, and there's that shot in the arm. You got this. Get up. Dust yourself off. Keep moving forward. Mm. And I, I, what I found really interesting is, Men will stumble onto the podcast or someone will tell them about it and they'll listen to one, 10, 20, 50, 60, just, you know, binge listen to them because it's one of those things that it, it's that it, it's a vitamin doesn't, you know, take the place if you're you. reading and praying. That's right. But they find, wow, this is like fresh air. So, yeah, that's awesome. Now you do conferences as well. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, we have a mutual friend, a good friend of ours who was who one of your speakers who just died. Yeah. A uh, man who loved Jesus named Tony Bolstorff. Um, I just went to his funeral last week, actually. Yeah, man, that, was, that was hard. Yeah, Tony taught on our finances, investing, money, issues like that. Uh, I won't get into his death or anything, but it caught everybody off guard. Well, it was not expected no, by anybody, no. yeah. So our conferences, the first couple we've charged for, but we, as a board, have been talking during the COVID time, and we really feel like we need to offer them for free. Yeah. So we have two scheduled in the spring. Who knows, you know, with the COVID, yeah. but one in Chicago and then one in the Twin Cities. The people who come and speak. So you got are, Joe Bazzat. Yeah. Who is... That's bad a bad man. That's a bad, bad man. So Joe's a good friend of both of ours. His wife is, is like my sister. Um, he makes, he jokes, he, he works for the government. Nobody really knows what he does because he's not allowed to say, though he is retiring. 
Yeah. He's yeah. retiring like in a week or something like that. Well, we know, but honestly, we were not supposed to. We're say. not supposed to talk about it. But he said, he goes, Jason, you know, all men with JB, they're the bad, they're the bad dudes like James Bond, Jason Bourne, Joe Bizzot, yeah. Jack Bauer. It's Jack all ba- the, J- yeah. it's all the JVs. Um, but even at the conference and the stuff, it's, you're bringing real men in yeah. to talk about real issues, but it's that encouragement of, Hey, this whole being a man, it's, it's tough to do alone. We're not meant to do it alone. No. And hero makers, you know, when we started this, the idea is we want men to, we want every, everyday men to be heroes, right? to be heroes in their families and their communities. And uh, so I was excited. I'm like, dude, I got to get Garth down. And we've been talking about it for about a year now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really glad you're here. Um, so one of the conversations you and I have had in the past, we actually talked about it on Saturday as well, is when we first met, you were more like that, you were a youth pastor as well, and you were kind of that big brother, uncle, you know, you had kids in your youth group who you were old enough to be their dad, right? but you would have been a young dad. Uh, and then when we <coughs> I start, was a young dad. You were a young dad. Yeah. And then but when we started Harmony, you were more like a spiritual father, and now you're a grandfather. Yeah. And, and share a little bit about your journey and how, you've, how your view of being a pastor has changed in that role. Because, you know, what I've been told is, you know, the, the benefit of being a grandparent is you get to hand kids off. <laughs> it's very true. Um, but also, the, the, old, the men that I know have been pastoring for years, when they make that transition, it does affect how they pastor. They see people differently. Um, I'd love for you to share a little bit about how becoming a grandfather, how age and how many years have you been doing ministry now? 37. 37 years. How, how have you seen your role change in how you approach not just men, but people? Right. You know, one of the, one of the things that I was really blessed with was, was having such a strong father figure. And I look back now and I see how my friends gravitated wanting to be at our house, to be around my dad, to yeah. be around my mom. I saw that growing uh, with my boys growing up. Their boys, their friends wanted to be in our house, be around me, be around Kim. And now, you know, now I've always been a mentor to people, just kind of my gifting. But now that I'm older, I can mentor females as, as much as I can mentor men. Yeah. There's Always a safety. Safety precautions. Yes. Yeah. Be, be careful. So I, I, uh, yeah, my wife's watching. She's like, you better clarify that. right away. <laughs> but, you know, men are seeking someone they can trust who's older in their minds, wiser, whether we are or not, maybe we've just made more mistakes, but ultimately that are still on fire for God. And my prayer has been the last 10 years more than ever. I want to get older and bolder, not older and colder. I see a lot of men start to slip into retirement and get older. And it's like, they're taking off their gloves, laying down their Bible. Like I put my time and, uh, being older, having gray hair, having grandkids affords me the opportunity to be even more in people's lives to, uh, I'll, I have a, it's, it's funny at the gym I'm at now, I've got a strong following of young teenage girls and it's totally just because they started up, came, asked me questions about some different lifts. Cause you used to own a gym. <clears throat> I used to own a gym, competitive power lifter. So I know a little more <clears throat> than the average bear, but with that, they, there's this sense of uh, maybe before it would have been like, he's kind of like a dad, but now more like, yeah, he's, he, I could see him as my grandpa or just, you know, a loving, caring individual. And the nice thing is, you know, when you were younger, it was more for younger guys, maybe some older married guys. But now that I'm older, God has really opened up the door that I can really be a mentor to uh, male or female and all ages. Yeah. 
and really through the love of a father, not as you know, not that I ever took anybody on as a project, but no one wants to feel like a project. That's right, yeah. So now to come in and feel like I really love them as a, as a, as a mentor, as uh, someone in their life that they can look at as a father or a grandfather or uncle, that has really allowed me to be able to speak into a lot more people's lives. Minister way more effective than just getting up in the platform and preaching a sermon. Yeah. Well, and I know one of, the, one of the things that I've seen, and again, because we've done, I mean, Lisa and I are coming up on 19 years this year. Yeah. Um, but we've, I was a youth pastor together at the same time as you. Then I was your worship pastor. Yeah. Went on to be a teaching pastor, lead pastor. And, and I found my own journey change. But I've watched, there's a softer, there's a softness to you that was different than, right. and you still are in your face because that's your personality, right? But there's a softness now to how you pastor. And I think some of that comes because they see you as a safe person. You're not just that guy challenging them anymore. Right. Um, you're a person who's, who cares really about them. Yeah, my wife used to tell me that I have a resting B.A. face. And uh, people would, you know, people would look at me and think, man, he's unapproachable. He's going to tell you off, tell you, you know, and that's never been my heart, though I am direct. You know, as I've gotten older, it has softened me probably more. My health journey has softened me yeah. more than anything. And I don't have to win anymore. I don't have to be right anymore. I don't have to correct people theologically anymore. Um, if it's appropriate in any of those areas, I, I will. I'll massage it into the conversation or into the relationship. But I've realized probably most more than anything, I need to love them. And they absolutely need to see a vibrant passion in my life for Jesus. Because that's, that, that's what draws them in. Yeah. You know? Not my knowledge, but that they, man, this guy's crazy about Jesus. Yeah. When you just shared your health journey, share a little bit about that. So um, cancer is a big part of your journey. Yeah. And uh, so share, share how that has affected you and uh, share whatever you want about that. Um, but I'd love to hear how your battle with cancer, which was supposed to be terminal. Right. How did that shape or reshape or shape indifferently your relationship with Christ, how you view the gospel, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, all that stuff? Well, I got cancer. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, and it was bad. And then I got cancer again, and then a cancer. Well, because it started okay. off as colon cancer. Cancer. Yeah. So in two thousand five, six, right around there, I was diagnosed stage three colon cancer. Had a tumor about the size of a softball or grapefruit, depending on which you hate most. Went in, had surgery. They. They were semi-hopeful that, you know, they got all the cancer. Went through eight months of chemo. Brutal, <clears throat> brutal. And felt pretty healthy once I started getting out of chemo. Did a bunch of blood work almost 15 months to the day. Went in for some blood work and the doctor, you know, shut the door and said, hey, uh, it's back. And I, I, was, I was excited. I thought he was talking about the McRib. Um, he wasn't. <laughs> <clears throat> and I was like, what's back? So now also in between that, it had spread through my lymph system. And also I'd gotten C. dip, which is just a wicked infection. So anyway, he said it's back. They did some more tests and it was liver cancer, stage four. They said, you know, I told, I asked the doctor, give me best case scenario, like the absolute best case scenario. My wife was in the room, so I was hoping he was going to say, well, you'll kick this thing and you'll make it. And he goes, best case scenario, five years. 
And so then I, I was so caught off guard. I was like, well, what's the realistic? And he goes, uh, two. So we took that fight on. We buckled up. We had to have about five more surgeries. Had to go through seven more months of chemo. It was, it made the first round of chemo seem like it was a, a pleasure cruise. It was amazing. Lost all my hair, uh, lost hearing in my right ear, a lot of hearing in my left ear, lost the feeling in my fingers and toes, uh, got through it. I'm one of three patients out of 2,000 with my oncologist that has gone through liver cancer and lived. At, at 15 months, again, was walking into my doctor's office. You can't make this up. Walking in. And as I'm going down the hallway, getting ready to open the door, my phone rings. I answer the phone. And it's another clinic that had done my, my MRI. And they said, yeah, we found a brain tumor. And so my family was in the waiting room because we were getting ready to celebrate 15 months cancer-free from liver cancer. So I walked in. My mom immediately knew something was wrong. And I said, well, I just got a phone call. said, I have a brain tumor. So long story short, it's benign, which is good. I'm on a, a series of medications and shots to help control it, shrink it. Right now, it doesn't look like we'll need to do surgery. If we do, it's really, I love the way my doctor says it. It's incredibly non-invasive. They just cut underneath your lip from here to here. Oh. Pull your face up, go th <laughs> through your nasal passage under your <laughs> orbital socket. So it's a routine. Yeah, basic. Uh, it's, like, it's like your basic knee surgery or like ingrown toenail. Yeah, because yeah. he, he goes, well, they used to have to cut you from here to here and peel your face down. Then you have this huge scar. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. I, but <laughs> right now we're just, uh, we're waiting uh, to make sure it shrinks. It's been shrinking and it's now kind of paused. It's still the same size. In a couple of years, we'll make a decision. Do I stay on... Well, I'll always be on some shots and medications, but do we just get off the ones that are shrinking it and hopefully it doesn't grow again? Yeah. If it does, then we got to go in and we got to cut that sucker out. So going through that, I mean, that was a big battle and your wife was a, in a, a saint through it. Yeah. Um, how did that, how did that shape your view of Jesus? I mean, cause here, here's the thing. Life is never easy and we know that. Right. God never promises it's going to be easy. Um, I think sometimes that's what the prosperity gospel wants us to believe. Right. You tithe enough, say enough prayers, the right thing. You won't get cancer. Cancer happens. Right. Um, divorces happen. Uh, struggles with your kids. And we'll get into the kids in a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but how did your battle with cancer, how did that shape your understanding or view of Jesus? Did it change it at all? Did it enhance it? Um, share a little bit about that. Because I think, and I'll just tell you, in the men that I've talked to at Zion that come to Hero Makers, a lot of them are going through stuff. Right. And sometimes it's helpful to hear somebody who has been through stuff, maybe even harder stuff than we have, that perspective, right. I guess, or perception. Right. Um, but I'd love for you to share, how has is, how is that struggle drawn you closer to Christ? How did it change your view of the gospel, um, your view of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, all that stuff? I think we all go into our Christian walk with kind of a self-planned, future. This is how it's going to go. I've got God now. So I'll have a couple hard times, but he's going to be there to take care of me. And there's nothing that I'll go through that he can't take care of. And, you know, maybe I'll have to pray a little extra, uh, go to church maybe two times in a row, not just <laughs> once a month. But all in all, you know what, now that I've got Jesus, um, th I'm ready to roll. Let's do this. Then life happens, like you said, regardless of what it is. 
And you have to come to a realization that uh, of why you serve God. Yeah. And so I knew early on, I said, I'm going to serve God in whatever role I find myself in. I thought the first few years of marriage, I was going to find myself in a role as a divorced man yeah. who in my denomination could then not be in ministry. I, for a while, thought I was going to be in the role of a man who had paralysis in his arms and going to serve God through no matter what it is. And sometimes those roles, such as cancer patient, or when you look at, they give you a date on the calendar and you realize, okay, my role has got 740 days left in it. That's when you really have to ask yourself, did I, did I really have that foundational belief that I'm going to serve him in any role? Ultimately, you come back to why should I serve him? And maybe the best thing about going through those issues is that you wrestle with, why am I going to serve God through all of this? And hopefully, ultimately, you come to the understanding because he's worthy. He's worth it. And probably the most faith-filled statement in all of Scripture, to me, I have it tattooed on my arm, is Daniel 3.18, where the king's going to go throw Shadrach and Benny in the fire. And they just look at him and say, can God save us? Yep. Will he save us? We don't know. Are we going to bow? No. And so I'd get up many mornings and say, am I going to get through this? I don't know. Can God heal me of my cancer? Sure. Um, Is he going to? I I don't know, but I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to quit serving him. And through that, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't want anybody to confuse when I say this with, well, you know, God used cancer. God used cancer, but he never gave me cancer. That's right. So God didn't give me cancer to make me this way, this way, or this way. That would show how limited God is that he has to use disease. And like Charles Capps says, where would he have gotten it? <laughs> where, would, where would God get disease? He doesn't have, any, he doesn't have disease yeah. in him. So. But point is, you get to a point where you realize he's worthy, period. And the assurance and the faith and the peace that resonates in you goes beyond description where you can sit and, uh, you know, at one point they gave me a report that said you have 11% chance um, over the next year to stay alive. And that hits you in the face like a shovel. And to drive home and to have a peace in the car that, you know what, it's okay. I'll serve God no matter what. You don't get that without going through those trials, those fires. And so in a way, it's, it's really a blessing to be able to find yourself in that and say, I got to find God. Yeah. And when you do, it just sits with you. It never leaves you. So, so now in this other side of that is so we're not just dealing with men, but also with fathers. Um, I've talked to some men over the years, not just at Zion, but at many churches, they feel guilty because one or both their kids or many of their kids aren't walking with Jesus. Yeah. And you've got two great sons, but they've each had very different journeys. Yeah. Uh, and I know cancer was part of that. Would you mind sharing a little bit? Because we talked about this before. Um, you, didn't have, you don't have two kids that are madly in love with Jesus. Uh, well, actually, I think both are now, but they kind of right. went through some stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, share a little bit about that because I, I think it's important. Um, I think sometimes men, uh, they carry that weight as if, you know, they, there are certain scriptures that we lean on that are often preached about or taught on that it's almost like, well, if your kid isn't loving Jesus, will you fail as a parent? Right. And I know parents, I know, I know pastor's kids, your kids, perfectly not mine, but I know lots of PKs, pastor's kids who have walked away from the Lord 
And it's not because their parents didn't love Jesus or didn't love them. It's because they're human beings and they have choices. Yeah. I'd love if you feel comfortable, share a little bit about your kids' journeys. And I know cancer was a part of that for your youngest. Yeah. Two boys uh, couldn't be more opposite. Now, they're, they're best friends as brothers, which tickles me pink. I love that. It still shocks me when I'll, I'll go, you were talking to your brother today? Yeah. Like, you know, oh, okay. And they joke and talk a lot. The one is book smart, the one is street smart. The one had challenges, uh, probably more intellectually, and just, you know, trying to work through issues from more of an intellectual perspective. Always loved God, but was so smart sometimes it, it got the best of him. Went into ministry for a little bit, realized and that's that, Ryan. We're yeah, talking about Ryan. My oldest went into ministry for a little bit, realized he doesn't have to be like his dad which I think then that's when the pressure rolled off and he's really just to be able to serve God and doing great now. <clears throat> My youngest and I were always best friends growing up. We had skateboard together, snowboard together, water ski together, everything. And when I got cancer the first time, he didn't know how to deal with it, so he started to use drugs. And how old was he at that point? He was 15. Okay. When I got liver cancer and they pretty much announced I've got limited time, that's when he completely checked out. And I'll never forget the day I found out, my whole family gathered at our house, it was on a weekend, and, and he wasn't down in the room with everybody. So I went upstairs and said, hey, uh, you don't have to come down with us, but I just want you to know that I love you, and if you have any questions. And he said, no, nope, don't have any questions. I walked to his door, started to walk out, and he goes, yeah, I have a question. I said, oh, okay. He goes, are you gonna die? And that was the moment to not make a joke. Well, everybody's going to die, you know. And I said, Reese, I'm going to fight this with everything in me. But the doctors say I will only have about two years. And his, his words, I'll quote him, he said, it doesn't matter. And I just knew the hardness had set in. You know, he was like, he's, he's checked out. At that point, it was guns and drugs and jail. Oh, my. And repeat. So he went through a long period. He lost one friend who's now just wandering Florida as a heroin addict. He lost another friend to a heroin uh, overdose. And he has another friend that's facing 12 years in prison, his, best, his three best friends. That has finally rattled him to a point where now he's come back to God, working for a pastor friend of mine, doing amazing. But when you see your sons kind of at, at one point in polar directions, you want to go, how did I mess up, you know, one? And the truth is, is my oldest, I really didn't do much other than just love Jesus and be the role model. And he kind of figured it out. And then my youngest, I just kind of loved Jesus and had cancer. And he was like, I'm done with this. The thing I keep coming back to is, first of all, I kept trying to find small victories that I could talk to my son about in his life. Yeah. Hey, man, you, I mean, I know you bought that gun off the street, but you made a smart choice. That's a nice gun. I'm just kidding. But there were, <laughs> there were, there I was were, like, uh, okay. But there were times where you're looking for anything. Anything, you're, yeah. You're like, um, but ultimately, if your marriage is right, your kids are hungry to have that marriage. And to... My wife's credit, because she saved my relationship with my son, because there are many times I want to throw him out, I want to beat him up, I want to toss him down the stairs. 
Uh, and there were times in chemo that wouldn't have worked. He would have thrown me out the window. He's a big kid. Yeah. He's it's a, a bodybuilder. Yeah. <laughs> but she continued to remind me, if we keep our marriage intact, even if you end up dying, he's left with this picture of what a godly marriage is. And for a young man who has got great, amazing grandparents, and my parents sees his mom and dad love each other, and it's through Christ. That's the number one calling card that's going to draw a kid back into faith. Whether he gets married as a Christian or not, at some point he's going to go, we need God. The only way my parents made this work was with God. He sees the beauty of my parents' marriage. He sees the beauty of our marriage. And, and he knows it's simply because of the relationship we have with Jesus. So again, men, don't, don't give up. Keep loving your wife. Keep serving God. And trust, you know, when it says train up a child in the way he should go. Yeah, um, but that's not three months of training. Sometimes that's three years. Sometimes that's 30 years of training. But they're watching. They're watching. Well, and I think that's, um, even as you talked about, Reese, and I remember we'd talk every once in a while, because we, we probably talk every couple months yep. just to check in. And even when he was going through the worst of it, you always talked about the tenderness. Yeah. Because he is such a tender kid. He's such a tender man. Right. And he was a tender kid. I mean, I remember, I remember picking him up from the skate park <laughs> one time because your wife had a headache and she called yeah. and she's like, hey, would you pick up Reese? But he always had this very soft heart. Yeah. And even, at, even when he was going through his worst stuff, even when he was still hard, his heart, his heart was hard. Right. You still spoke about that tenderness in him. Mm-hmm. Um, what, would, what, what advice would you give? I mean, besides get, not giving up, and that's probably why I bring up that tenderness. If there are fathers and maybe you've got a kid who's old, an adult, or they're not walking with Jesus. What other encouragement would you give to a father who is struggling either with shame, right? Um, or hey, how do I how do I love my kid back to this? Because I hear this so often. Because there's this expectation, like I don't understand. We brought him to church, we did all the right things, and it can be really discouraging for the parent, right? Um, how would you encourage them? What would you What would you say to them? Well, you know the classic example. You know, you plant an acorn. And you're going to be really discouraged for the first 25, 30 years. <laughs> now, I can't climb in this tree. What yeah. happened? It's not giving off acorns. It's not attracting birds or squirrels or not giving shade as much as I want. Uh, it's, uh, you know, don't give up. But I would say ultimately probably the secret weapon that a lot of men lack is physical affection with their boys. Oh, wow. That's good. And it's funny because a couple weeks ago someone showed a picture of Joe Biden uh, kissing his son. And people were all, you know, this is horrible. Blah, blah, blah. And my son and I, we both talked about it. And we said, and, and, you know, regardless of you're a fan or not, we thought, what a twisted world we live in that they think that's inappropriate. Because my boys, last night, I kissed my son goodnight. He's 30, almost 31 years old. Yeah. Uh, physical affection for your boys is what takes your words and brings them to life. So you can say, I love you and mean it. Um, I trust you and mean it. I believe the best in you. You have a great, all those are great, but actual appropriate physical touch is what causes a kid's heart and spirit and life to come alive. And those are the things that never leave them that continue to keep that heart tender. Yeah. Uh, Because sometimes words, even if you mean it, can seem empty and almost make the hard heart, almost have an opposite reaction. Whereas if you are willing, and guys, if you're not affectionate, be affectionate. Get over it. Yeah. Quit, get, quit get blaming it. it. Quit blaming it. 
It's like your son's, you know, dying in a fire and he's reaching out. And you're like, I'm, I'm not a touchy kind of person. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, that's how stupid it is. Yeah. Your son's dying for help. Touch him. Um, and if you don't say you love him, then tell him you love him. Uh, text it if you have to, but words are most powerful. I think that's a, another big one. But then ultimately, you have to have a life that's just, that is consistent as far as seeking God. Not perfect. I mean, who in this room can say they're perfect? Uh, but that they're, if they see you consistently seeking God, and that that's a priority. And in fact, many times, I hear from young men growing up who said, my dad was a Christian, and when he failed morally or this area, this area, I got so mad at him. But you know what? He never gave up. He never quit trying to push in for God. And that actually meant more to them than, than dad just saying, I blew it, and then kind of falling back in the shadows and sucking their thumb. And, you know, so it's just that model of consistency again and again and again. Yeah. Well, one of the things we've talked about, and we've shared this in Hero Makers in the past, is it's not about perfection, it's about persistence. Yeah. Because the only perfect human ever was Jesus. And, and what God wants is us is, are we persistently pursuing Him? Because we're going to fail, we're going to fall, we're going to stumble. And I think it's, it's much like our children. You know, I don't expect my kids to be perfect, but I never want my kids to give up. Right. Um, you know, I, I think about Eli, and we have a ritual almost every night where I wrestle him as he's in bed. And, and we, were, we started doing a little Brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff. And so I'll get on top of him, like, how are you going to get out of this? And, but it's that physical touch. It's that connection. Right. And then I'll give him a hug and a kiss. And, um, you know, for me, I didn't grow up with a dad. Never met my father. And for me, it was almost a natural, like, why wouldn't I do this? And I think it came from this. I starved so much for that when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, that now I make sure my kids, both my daughter, my daughter, Indy, and my son, Eli, they always know I love them. I mean, I probably sell it. I probably say it too much. Actually, I don't think you can ever say it too much. Um, I, I think there's something there's something profound and beautiful. In that. So I'll take a minute for uh, probably two minutes for a story that is incredibly powerful to me. I come home one night. It's about nine o'clock. My son's in the kitchen. My youngest, the rebellious one at the time. He's probably 16, 17. And he's got one of his friends there. And so I come in, he says, Dad, I'm going to get my nose pierced to my cheek, to my ear. And I go, no, you're not. He goes, yeah, I am. No, you're not. So we have this little interaction. And he goes, well, I'm doing it anyway. I said, well, then prepare to move out. And he goes, you kick me out just because I get my nose pierced and my cheek pierced, my ear pierced. Show me in the Bible where that's a sin. It's not about being a sin. It's about you disrespecting me. You're putting holes in your body and you're not 18 yet. Let's wait until you're 18, then put as many holes in your body as you <laughs> Do want. Do whatever you want at 18. He yeah. already had his ears pierced. I don't care. And so he copped this attitude, said, well, let's see what you do tomorrow when I show up with my nose, cheek, and ear pierced. I said, well, pack your stuff tonight because you won't have time tomorrow by the time I throw you up. And <clears throat> I walk out of the kitchen, through the family room, through the dining room, to the stairs. And I get to the stairs. I'm steaming. Um... I get mad once in a while and <laughs> I'm ready. I'm like, you know, I'm not done. I'm not done telling this kid what's going to happen. So I turn around, walk back through the dining room to the family room. I'm about to go around the corner to the kitchen and I hear his friend and his, they're kind of talking and I stop for a second and his friend goes, you'd really do that knowing your dad's going to kick you out. And Reese is like, yeah, I don't care. Blah, blah, blah. And his friend says, then I'm going to move in. 
And Reese kind of jokes, and this kid is dead serious. Doesn't, doesn't have a good family life. And he goes, Reese, you come home every day to home-cooked meal, to a mom and dad who hug you and kiss you. They tell you they love you. You have your own bedroom. He goes through all these things. He goes, if you move out, I swear to God I'm moving in. Yeah. And Reese stopped for a second, and it just caught him off guard. And I, man, I'm so glad I didn't make it around the corner. <laughs> I stood there. I walked back, stepped back, went back upstairs and thought, you know, that's the heart of most boys. Just give me a place where I belong. But it was, it, it took my youngest a while to see what he had. And not that we're a perfect family, not by any means. I'm the dad. So right there, we're not, we're not going to have the perfect family. <laughs> but it's in that sense where you go, well, you know what? Boys need to know that they're loved. It might take them a while to see what they have. But it'll break the hardest ground. So you just got to keep swinging. Yeah, which I, I think that leads to another question. And that is, um, so our, our culture has redefined masculinity. And sometimes we confuse manliness with masculinity. Right. And they're not the same thing. Or on the flip side, emasculating men to where culture wants men to not be men anymore. We want right. men to act more like just hairier women. <laughs> yeah. And I'd love to hear, you know, in, in that culture where... Manliness, being a real man, doesn't isn't about hunting, though you love to hunt. It's not about shooting guns or watching UFC, though you do all those things. Being a man is about having a heart after God. Right. Um, what what would you define if I were to, if we were to say what would you define a real manliness, manhood in the eyes of God? What does that look like? Right. So many conversations in my gym, which was uh, it was a hardcore powerlifting gym, rated the number one powerlifting gym in the country at one point. And have conversations with men who, who worship masculinity, worship that. Their gun, their bench press, their, uh, their latest raid in the sack with whoever that was with. And, and they would many times tease me because they were like, you know, we, knew, we know you're not into this. And they'd tell me things or want to tell me things. Manliness is being able to sit there and say, and, and a true story, I won't say the guy's nickname, because uh, he's a power lifter. You, if you know who he is, you'd know who he is. But I'll just say Bob. And I looked at him and I said, Bob, you know what? I love you so much. You have incredible potential. And he's just kind of smirking. Because you know you say that in a power lifting gym, especially to a guy. And I said, and I don't know much, but I know how to have a happy marriage. And you're not doing it. You're not heading there. And if you ever want, I'd love to pray for you and give you some insight on how to have a happy marriage. And he laughed and blew me off and whatever, whatever. And it wasn't but three months later, someone listening to that conversation came to me and said, hey, I heard what you said. I'm going through it in my marriage. How do, what do I do? You know, got to pray for him. But it's just willing to speak the truth, but mostly in love. So like you said, there's two dichotomies. There's a guy who his wife has his, you know, his wife has emasculated him. This isn't my podcast, so I can't say what I want to do. His wife has basically emasculated him, and he's just, basically he's waiting for retirement. She's neutered him. Yeah, neutered him. And so he's waiting for retirement to get a little bit of a break from her and be able to do something of his own. Maybe, maybe he likes to fish, he's thinking, great. How much to string a hook and I can dig up my own worms cost and get away from my wife. And then, then there are men who worship masculinity. They worship the fast car, testosterone, uh, pornography, all that that's wrapped up in. And we need men. We need, I like men who sit behind a computer and hack codes and do things and push up their glasses. And it's not me. Love those men. I they're love still the men. Yeah, they're men. Yeah. I love the guys who 
um, this last week, a friend of mine in the church got a new Glock, brought it to church, wanted to show it to me, love it, want to shoot it. But in either case scenario, you neither worship masculinity or walk around emasculated, but the balance is I take the love of God wherever I go, and I'm not afraid to talk about it, whether I'm at the uh, local governmental access meeting with regarding the library or whether I'm at the gym or whether I'm at my job with my employees or my boss and people are going to look at me weird. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that's what a man is. I'm not ashamed. I'm going to speak life. I, I used to get passionate and almost an attitude when I talk about the gospel. And it probably turned some people off. But now it's like I need to get that passion of love across. You know, I'm, I'm adamant about this because I know how much God loves you. And not being afraid to say that. And if you ask my boys, growing up, probably the most embarrassing thing was being out with dad. Because half the time I'm telling people about Jesus, praying for people. <laughs> um, one of my favorite compliments ever is we went to a Todd White uh, conference a couple years ago, my oldest. It's packed. We get in there. We took a seat. It's in Minneapolis, so it's in our neighborhood, in our area. And this guy comes up to me and he goes, Garth, how you doing? We're talking. And laughing and, and my oldest boy sitting there at the time he's probably 27 28 and I said oh I'm sorry this is my son Ryan and Ryan goes hey how are you his name's Mike and he my son Ryan looks at him and goes well how do you know my dad and he goes he led me to Christ to caribou and my son goes of course he did you know <laughs> and that was so I was like cause they know my heart yeah and and so my boys and my friends that are Christian and non-Christian. I have a lot of non-Christian friends. I have extreme, I have non-Christian friends who are murderers and dope dealers and they're bad people, but they know I love them and I love them with the love of Christ. I had a guy call me two months ago. He called me two months before that, cussed me out because I, I talked to his girlfriend. She said, he's not responding. I said, call the police, call an ambulance, something. Well, then he called me a couple days later. What are you doing? You, you know, I got guns and drugs in my apartment. You told my girlfriend to call. I'm like, dude, you, we thought you were dying. Well, then he calls me two months after that. And I'm like, are we good? He's like, yeah, we're good. I, I love you, man. I know you got my back. And just bad people. But, you know, it's Jesus. Jesus hung around with the worst of sinners. That's right. They felt comfortable around him because he loved them. Yeah. Real men can hang around sinners and they feel comfortable because they have the love of Christ for them. So... I, uh, so when we did ministry together, I mean, neither of us are very shy about praying for people. Yeah. In fact, when I was actually heading over to another friend of ours, uh, Trudy Tilseth, who passed away the same week as Tony, I was stopping over at the gas station in Rosemount and I see this guy out there and he's got his headphones on and he's just kind of bopping and I go get something and I'm coming back and I just hear that Holy Spirit, right. that, that little voice saying, Hey, you need to pray for this guy. And I don't always do that well. Sometimes I fight the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to, that's a big dude. That dude's scary looking. And uh, I remember I just walked up to him and I said, hey, and he took out his headphones. I said, man, is there something I can be praying for you on? And he started to cry a little bit and his name's Willie. So Willie, a chance of whatever, if you're watching this, I'm the dude to pray for you at the gas station. It's like, yeah, uh, I've been in dialysis for months and I need a new kidney and prayed with him right there. And that was one of my favorite things when, because when we would, didn't matter where we were, if God opened up those opportunities, whether it be at the gym or the gas station or we're at a restaurant. Right. Um, you know, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, and we, we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, how would you encourage men 
you know, I think so often men think that you have to be some spiritual giant to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. They think that you've got to know your Bible and know all these things. But you and I think this is one of the things we both have in common. We love people and we love Jesus. Right. Um, what encouragement would you give to a man who's saying, hey, I, I really, I want that boldness and I want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, but I'm not sure how. Uh, and maybe it's fear or whatever it is. What, what encouragement would you give to them? Well, the Holy Spirit's a person and we sometimes treat him like a power. So sometimes we circumvent the whole process because we go after power with want, without wanting to know yeah, the person. That's good. It's like digging in the pack, back pocket of, of your dad just wanting money. You never introduce yourself. He's your dad. And so if you first start with trying to get to know him as a person, uh, you'll find it easier to hear his voice. And the second thing I would say in, in moving in the power of the Holy Spirit and moving in the direction of the Holy Spirit, hearing his voice, it all comes down to practice. I mean, the two times that Christ sent out the disciples, it was practice. And they didn't always do it very well. No. <laughs> and in fact, the one time they just got done, they came back and they were talking about demons obeyed us. And we did this, we did this. And then a guy brings his little boy and they can't cast the demon out, you know, so the, it's practice. I always tell men the best way to energize, supercharge your Christian walk is to begin to share the gospel with people and pray for people. And I do this a lot uh, when I'm somewhere and when I'm at the gym, I know people who call themselves Christians and who, and who don't. So if I get a chance to pray for someone and there's somebody else around who says they're a Christian, I'll say, hey, come over here, come over here. What, what? Yeah. We're going to pray for this person. And many times that person's like, what? And now inside I'm going, well, you're a Christian, you should be doing this. But if not, it's okay, we'll fake it. And I say, let's lay hands on them and pray for them. We pray for them. Not only is the person touched, but the person who's a Christian who prayed with me, they're lit. They're like, that was amazing. I felt, And so one of the things we teach at the David Alliance, the conference specifically, is the principles that God used when he sent the disciples out. And it's when you learn that God, God honors your love for him. You don't earn it, but he honors that intimacy. And I can say there are times when I'm talking to someone and I speak something into their life and it's not a prophetic word until I'm done. And then it's a prophetic word. I didn't hear it as a prophetic word. I spoke it and God said, okay, I'll put my stamp of approval on that. Yeah. And when we step out and just take, you know, faith is R-I-S-K. When we just risk it, God loves it. I mean, you think of when your kids did dumb things and you just step back and laugh you go, I love the kid. He's not willing to, he's not willing to fail. You know, my, my youngest, when he was like nine years old, 10 years old, I took him to a skate contest, amazing skateboarders there. And he's practicing in his two or three little tricks, all, all he knows. And he comes skating up to me and he goes, dad, I think I'm going to win. And inside I'm <laughs> laughing though. There's not a chance. If, yeah. if an earthquake opens up and swallows everybody and you're the only one left, great. You're going to win. You're not gonna... Now I laughed inside, but I loved his heart. Yes. I said, you give it your best. You go for it. And he was like 24, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, was, it was like last year. He, he might have won at 24. <laughs> but, uh, you know, God wants us to try. Even if we fail, he wants us like, well, that wasn't my voice, but you tried. I love you. Um, even if we pray and the person's not healed and the answer doesn't come, he honors that and it actually builds a foundation for us to better hear him. And many times when I get a prophetic word, I stop and I go, okay, don't read into this. Wait for what God's going to say. 
And you just learn through that constant application of your, your relationship through him and stepping out and taking a chance. I think it was Dallas Willard said, God's opposed to earning, not effort. Yes, exactly. And, and sometimes we assume that we want Christian life to be easy. Right. And it's not. In fact, to grow in our relationship with Christ, it takes effort. Yeah. It, it takes that. Um, I'm reading another guy right now, and he's saying, so often we confuse Bible reading with Bible study. Yeah. And there's a difference. You know, someone can read the Bible and go, oh, that's good. But Bible study is actually consuming it and digging into it and, yeah. and seeing the heart of what's taking place. Um, fear and uncertainty right now are really big in our culture. And I'm curious, um, between the election, COVID, racial tension, right. all the chaos in the world right now, how do you think God wants to use men in the church, um, specifically godly men, <laughs> right. uh, who want to follow Jesus to counter that culture? How, how does God want men to step up in the midst of that time of uncertainty and fear? How can they lead in that? I think people are looking for not just men, women as well, but but this is hero makers. So the women, yes, for the women's so watching this, that's awesome. They got sisterhood. No, actually, ladies, if you're watching, turn it off. <laughs> it's uh, 55 minutes in, but sure, yeah, turn it off now. You know, there's, you know, there are people who walk into a room in the middle of an emergency and they have a confidence. Uh, one of my close friends is an EMT, and I've seen him at church or in different. In fact, just yesterday there was an accident right outside our church, and just with complete calmness, just walk into that situation and handle it. When you're a man of God, people notice that you have a calmness about you, regardless of the election or COVID or anything else. And our world is starving for that. And so I would say, again, that comes through your, your intimacy with Jesus. Don't do dumb things, guys. Life's already, life's already hard. Uh, when my wife says, hey, we need to talk, I don't panic. There's nothing on my phone, my computer. I didn't do anything, say anything, go anywhere, spend anything. You know, life's already hard. I'm not going to make dumb decisions. But then on top of that, if, as I know Jesus, it, whatever happens, happens. I mean, I trust God, not in a nihilistic sense. I trust that his will is going to be done regardless. And so when people, and they have talked to me, about how can you be so calm about this or that or the other? Say, because ultimately I talk to the person who calms the storms, talk to them every day. Amen. And so I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Well, you kind of answered. I, I think that's a really big challenge from the Holy Spirit for our men. Um, I, I want to leave you with one final question. And this, why do men need other men in their lives? Well, I think uh, I'll answer that two parts. One, we never choose things. Most of us never choose things that make us uncomfortable and have to change for the better. Going back to the beginning. Men only change, you know, through trauma. And very few men will choose trauma. That's why God gets, has us get married, because there's going to be that grind. We get tricked by, you know, a nice figure and a pretty smile and a good kisser. And we don't realize, wow, this person's going to grind me. They'll either grind me to dust or they'll polish me. If, if I put that relationship in Christ's hands, they'll polish me. Men are other relationships that... A, a wife or a woman can't do that in the same sense. It's what is fashioned for us to bring out the best in us. My world has always been the weight room. I can't be the strongest or the best without spotters. I just can't. It's foolishness. I need to have someone on both sides of the bar, someone behind me, regardless of the lift. That's how I can push myself. They're going to encourage me, push me, give me inside advice. They're going to be there to catch the bar. Yeah. Same in the spiritual realm. I need godly men around me 
You just reminded me of a story when we were working out. Finish your story. <laughs> um, so you got to have godly men same way who can see in your life, check your form, check yeah. your voice, catch you if you fall, reprimand you, encourage you, all of those things. What's strange is if you've come from a strong family with a great father who's done that, it feels comfortable. I understand why some men don't want to be accountable or be in men's groups because they've never grown up with that comfort where yeah. you mean men can actually like me and call me on my stuff? Yeah, yeah. And they can encourage you and instruct you and pray for you. And it's so weird for some men that they never allow themselves to be released into that environment. But it's necessary if you want to become all that God's called you to be. Yeah. So it was reminding me when you and I were working out, we got my bench to the best it ever had been. Now, I couldn't do a true bench. I can do a true bench now. But I remember because you, you could always lift more than me. And yet you still had Jason, me spot you. I can lift more than two of you. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But I remember you'd still have me spot you. And there were times that you were benching. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to do much good here. And that's, that's what you were talking about. That I'm like, <laughs> I even tell you this. But if, if this bar drops, you're pretty much on your own, bro. I'm here to clap. <laughs> I mean, you you can do it. Yeah. So when you were talking about spotters, I'm like, yeah, for me, you, you could, like, you know, I, I, I think I got my bench a true bench up to 285, something like that. Um, but you're significantly higher than that. Now we also, and I, I want to do a shout out to a local business guy, Jake Prezak. Yeah. Love Jake. Great uh, guy. So Jake's over at NIP. Him and Garth actually go way back. Yeah. Uh, we've to, competed together. And if you need a gym, go to Jake's gym. Not only is it a great gym, but Jake is quality guy, good man and smart. Knows he's, his stuff. he's a good dude. And, and I think uh, there's a small connection there. So I was telling him cause I, he had a relentless tattoo. Yeah, and I was like, "Relentless is that? Is that Garth Heckman's thing?" He's like, "How do you know Garth?" And so we had a conversation because I work out over at NIP. But yeah, good guy. Well, brother, I am so grateful for you as a friend. I love you. Um, thank you so much for coming down again. Nice right. coming, brother. Love you, bro. This is awesome. awesome. awesome.